Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me. And let's do this. Episode 17 of Moods and Modes. This is Alex. And once again, I feel a slight twinge as I jump in and have to speak over the music. I would love to just allow you to sit back and listen and have a transcendent experience, which you'll be able to do on your own at a later time. Alas, we must begin the program. The first thing we heard was a clip from an album by Brian Eno. I assume many of you know who he is. If not, I'll give a refresher shortly. And if you don't know him, you definitely know some of the artists he is associated with. That segued into a track from a forthcoming album by a very new project called Pact, P-A-K-T, which has a very interesting story behind it. What do both these tracks have in common? Well, not a whole lot. One was recorded in London in 1975. The other was recorded in Brooklyn almost 45 years to the day, August of 2020. And I suppose it is fair to make a musical comparison and point out that both of these clips have music that places more of an emphasis on texture and improvisation. Neither is a meticulously followed composition, and both would probably have quite detectable differences from one recorded take to the next. However, the main thing that both of these tracks have in common is, can you hear it? The bass. Which brings us to the first bass playing guest of Moods and Modes, Percy Jones. So I feel really lucky to have him here. 
I know it's hard to believe it's been all guitarists so far, as far as guests, no basses. But he won't be the last. There are more, including some that are already lined up, some real great ones. But as far as kicking things off for the bass on this program, there couldn't be anybody better. Now, Percy is the second guest on this program who is making music as far back as the late 1960s and is particularly known for works that came about in the mid-1970s. Our first was Peter Frampton, who happens to be somebody that if I were to go out to my street and poll random people, it would be difficult to find somebody who hadn't heard of him. And while that wouldn't be the case with Percy Jones, if I found somebody with a bass on their back or with eclectic music tastes, they just might have heard of him. Percy is a household name among bass players, and his fans include Stu Ham, who I have lots of history with and will be a guest on the show. And it was Stu who first turned me on to the band Percy is most associated with called Brand X, a groundbreaking jazz rock group, which we'll talk about. And I at one time included a member who would later go on to a level of fame easily comparable to Peter Frampton at his peak. Yet despite associations with folks who have received a great amount of public attention, Percy Jones is not about that kind of attention. He is about artistry and the music. The word unassuming comes to mind. Percy studied electrical engineering in college and seems like he'd be just as happy in a workshop or garage with a soldering iron in his hand instead of being on stage with a bass. However, his bass playing does indeed command attention and for good reason. So one final thing before we continue, as I've discussed before and many of you already know, I try not to make this show too much about me. Anything I talk about with my career is already out there. I'm a guest on other podcasts, I talk to magazines, I give appearances. I would like to think that this show provides something different that is not already out there and not redundant, and most importantly is more about the guest than me. That said, today's episode directly intersects with my career because the second clip that we listened to, P-A-K-T, well, that stands for Percy, Alex, Kenny, Tim. Percy Jones, Alex Skolnick, Kenny Grahowski, Tim Watzer. Needless to say, I am super excited and humbled by this. There is an album coming out, a double CD. There are tour dates. I'll talk about all this more later in the show. For now, I bring you the one, the only, Percy Jones. Hello? Hey, Percy. How are you? Hi, Alex. I really uh, enjoyed the gig we did. So did I. You know, I've been stuck at home for months. I've been just not playing with anybody, you know, just sitting at home, sort of practicing a little bit here and there, just to try and keep my stuff together. But, yeah, it was great to get out and play with somebody else, you know, and do some new stuff. When was the last gig you did before that? Well, it was it was at the bitter end with MJ12, which is another band that I have. And that was, well, it was in the winter. I can't remember the month. It was probably December or January. That was a long time. So, uh, yeah, it, it's been six months since I'd done a gig, period. Yeah, yeah it had been about four for me. I was on a tour that kept going right up until March, right when things started shutting. It was actually scheduled. The timing was fortunate that it was scheduled to end just as things shut down. Yeah, so you were lucky, uh, you know, relatively speaking. Definitely, definitely. I mean, two shows did get canceled, but out of more than a couple dozen, so that wasn't bad. Yeah, well, Brand X was supposed to go to Europe in April or May. Of course, that never happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm going to cut in for a moment. There is a good reason for Percy's quick, ironic laughter of resignation right there. First, let me explain what he's not saying. He's not saying that he and Brand X, the band he is most associated with and has been since the mid-70s, had a tour of Europe and it got postponed because of the pandemic. No, what he is saying is he and Brand X had a tour of Europe in April and May and it did get canceled, but not because of the pandemic, because of band drama. And we do discuss this for the next few minutes, but I'm not going to play that for you for a couple reasons. 
A, I don't want that to be the focus of this episode. And B, I don't want anybody to get in trouble, him or I. I do need to elaborate just a little bit, however, because it relates to the episode and where we're going next. So first, let me explain that the brand X that has existed in the 2000s has mostly consisted of some combination of original members who were there in the 1970s and 80s and younger players, some of whom might not have even been born when the band was in its prime. And they're not alone in that respect. There are quite a few touring acts where there's a younger member or two, and it gives the band a shot of youthful energy, along with the authenticity of the original members. Think of Derek Trucks with the Allman Brothers or Arnel Pineda with Journey, just to name a couple well-known examples. And while it's true Brand X has never done a yearly engagement at the Beacon Theater in New York like the Allman Brothers or a headlining spot on Lollapalooza, as Journey just announced, the band has its fans. They've managed to rebuild their following. They've become a hit on the more recent annual prog rock events, such as the Cruise to the Edge. And they can sell out some respectful venues. And one of the younger members who's become closely identified with the band, you know, much like Derek Trucks has with the Almonds, is drummer Kenny Grahowski. The drum chair of Brand X is very important for reasons which will become apparent. Now, again, I'm not going to get into details of the rift within the band, but I will just say that Kenny and Percy were on one side and other members and the band's management were on another side. It resulted in... Percy and Kenny leaving. And this happened just around the time that we played together as Percy, Alex, Kenny, and Tim. And there seemed to have been some strange rumors on the internet. Rumors on the internet. Imagine that. That this was Percy and Kennedy starting a new brand X. (laughs) I probably don't need to give you examples where there's a split in a band and then there's fighting over the name and who's the real band and (laughs) so ridiculous. This was not that. We did not do brand X songs. That rumor had to be shot down. This is a whole other project packed. And uh, I want to be respectful to brand X because I respect their legacy. Still love the music. And I know that the band is still going. And my working on this one project with a couple ex-members of theirs, including a founding member, has no bearing on that. So let's listen to a little bit of Brand X from the debut album, and then we'll come back on the other side with Percy telling us about the history of the band. This is from an album called Unorthodox Behavior from 1975, and the track is called Nuclear Burn. Now, were you there the whole time? Because I know the the band has so much history. Or was it dormant for a while, then it got resurrected? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of dormant several times. We started in about 1974, and I was living in London, and I'd already met Robin Lumley. That's Robin Lumley, Brand X keyboardist. In fact, we were all living in the same house. You know, we all used to jam in the kitchen in the 80s. Lumley had hooked up with some guys that used to get together every Wednesday night, I think, just to jam, you know, at a rehearsal room in South London. And he asked me if I wanted to go up and play, so I went up one Wednesday night and played, and Goodsoul was already involved in it. That's John Goodsoul, Brand X guitarist. Goodsoul and some other guys. So we spent some time jamming. I mean, that was the extent of it, really. Everybody was just doing it just to get a chance to play, you know, and try out new stuff. And then there was a roadie that helped us out called Sheds. Yeah. Everybody called him Sheds. <laughs> and he hooked up, somehow hooked up an audition with Island Records. And uh, two A&R guys from Island came down and really liked what we were doing, even though we were pretty much improvising, you know. Yeah, it's so unique. I mean, it was very unexpected. 
to have a record company sign you up doing stuff like that, you know. I guess at the time, things were more experimental, right? Coming off of the 60s and all the different styles of music that were popular. Well, I mean, I remember they were doing a lot of, quite a lot of reggae stuff and they signed Bob Marley. And the stuff we were listening to, was a lot of it was coming out of the U.S., like Tony Williams and Miles Davis and Mahavishnu Orchestra. That was the stuff that we were listening to, you know. All right, so I'm coming in. I want to elaborate on a couple things and summarize some things for time. So he's going to explain to me that Brand X was originally a vocal band, sort of similar to the average white band, who ironically is most famous for an instrumental song. And he calls it the below average white band <laughs> because nobody was happy with the record and the record never came out. And they wanted to redo a record as an instrumental album. And the record company agreed to it. Now, this seems surprising, except when you consider that in the mid-70s, we're in the wake of jazz rock being huge on a level that's hard to imagine today. On the Chick Corea tribute episode, we spoke about Chick's work with Miles Davis and the first electric jazz records culminating in Bitches Brew, which was a massive bestseller. Herbie Hancock's Headhunters came out around the same time, also a smash hit. The drummer Mike Clark, his name comes up in a little bit. And it's interesting that Brand X gets branded as a prog band, branded, no pun intended. I think they're more of a jazz fusion band because the keyboardist Robin Lumley, whose name came up earlier, you know, he plays mostly electric piano, which has more in common with Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock doing their electric stuff than the more prog keyboardists such as Keith Emerson of ELP or Rick Wakeman of Yes. And also some of the drummers of this band, Brand X, were very jazzy. You know, Mike Clark, as the aforementioned, and Kenwood Denard, who had played with Pat Bartino. He'll come up as well. However, the original drummer who is probably with them most of the time in the first wave of the band, did have prog associations. Now, there's a lot of irony here, and this is a really interesting story. So remember that the band had done a vocal album. Nobody was happy with it. So they switched to instrumental music, and they decided they needed a different drummer to do instrumental stuff. So the drummer they got ironically would go on to become better known as a singer he is the one i mentioned earlier who would reach levels of fame and recognition that nobody else could have imagined at the time his name was phil and chances are you are familiar with his voice i can feel it The original drummer was John Dillon, oh. and he was very good, but a sort of groove-type player. Very good at what he did, but not really suitable for what we wanted to do, you know. I see, yeah. So we started looking for other drummers, and Bill Bruford came down and played, and turned it down, because he said he was already playing with somebody else who didn't want to spread himself too thin. Yeah. And just in case anybody doesn't recognize the name Bill Bruford, he's considered one of the great drummers of rock, progressive rock, jazz rock, is on many top drummer lists, and is best known for the bands Yes and King Crimson. So he turned it down, and then one of the A&R guys suggested the drummer from Genesis, and I wasn't actually that familiar with Genesis at the time. So that was Phil. So Phil came down, played, and... We liked his stuff, and he liked us, so he ended up joining. So we did another record for Ireland, which... And right here, the reception isn't great. I'll just explain that they did their second record with their new drummer, the pre-superstar Phil Collins on drums, and it's great, but the label Island decides they don't like it. So Island gave us the boot. So luckily, Charisma, another label oh, okay. called Charisma, picked it up. Probably because Genesis was signed to Charisma, you know, so Phil probably helped with that. Charisma took the record we had recorded for Ireland and released it, and that was 
unorthodox behavior, the first Brand X record. Oh, I see. Actually, the second, but, you know, as I said, the first one never was never released. The Below Average White Band. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Below Average White Band. No, I don't want to dwell too much on the fact that the future household name of Phil Collins was a part of this band. However, he was a legitimate component and more than a bit player. He was not only on the debut release, it sounds like he helped them find a new home after they were dropped by the record label. He stuck around for several albums. He did several tours. And it's really interesting to keep in mind what was going on during this time period. Again, not to dwell on the name drop worthy name. But think about this. At this time, Genesis was more associated with groups like King Crimson. You know, large following, doing very well but not like the hit machine that they would become. And Peter Gabriel was the singer. He decided to launch a solo career. And while people of my generation are probably more familiar with Gabriel's MTV era hits like Big Time, Sledgehammer, and In Your Eyes, all of which were massive hits, he'd been doing solo albums since right after Genesis in the mid and late 70s. So this is what's amazing to me. Phil Collins having a career as a singer is an accident. Peter Gabriel is the lead singer. He's the focus. He's the front man. When he leaves, some are writing the obituary of the band, including some of its own members. This is from Wikipedia on the section of Genesis 1975 to 1977. And I'm converting this to present tense and slightly paraphrasing for context. Quote, Following Gabriel's final tour, guitarist Steve Hackett records his first solo album, unsure that Genesis will survive following Peter Gabriel's departure. Phil Collins has the idea of continuing as an instrumental group, and it's quickly rejected, as the rest of the group thinks that'll be too boring. Interesting, huh? So they don't have a singer, and they decide to record the album without vocals and audition singers as they go. They place an anonymous ad in Melody Maker for, quote, a singer for a Genesis type group, unquote, which receives around 400 replies. <laughs> and this is me interjecting. I think it was probably obvious that it was the real Genesis. Keep in mind, it was major news that the lead singer, Peter Gabriel, had left. All of a sudden, there's this mysterious ad of a band needing a singer that sounds like Genesis. <laughs> Continuing. Collins proceeds to teach selected applicants the songs. And there's uh, names of some couple well-known singers who tried out. Having failed to find a suitable vocalist, Collins goes into the studio and attempts to sing Squonk. His performance is well-received by the band, and they decide he should be their new lead vocalist. Collins then sings on the remaining tracks, unquote. Now, isn't that interesting? I don't know if you guys have seen this series currently airing on CNN called The History of Late Night, but there's one episode that talks about the search for a host for Late Night following The Tonight Show. David Letterman has left the network. He was pissed. He was denied The Tonight Show. It's pretty fascinating. Anyway, assisting the search is Conan O'Brien. He's a trusted writer on SNL, and he's sort of Lorne Michaels' right-hand man, and he's not even in the running, but at certain point, he says to Lorne, Psst, Lorne, I could host. You? Shh, shh. Really, man, I can do this. Just give me a shot, Lorne. Obviously, the rest is history. Conan becomes a successful host, but he wanted it, and it was a coveted position. People are trying out and he just grabbed it. Now, in the case of the Genesis lead singer position, Phil Collins did not want it. He worked very hard to not get it. He assisted in the search. He taught the songs to other singers. He suggested they should be an instrumental band. So obviously he becomes the singer and a band like Genesis, you have to be the front man. You can't be a drumming singer. You can get away with that if you're Don Henley, and you have Glenn Fry, Joe Walsh, and pretty much everybody in the band sings, in the case of the Eagles, or Ringo Starr with the Beatles, where you just sing an occasional song. So Phil Collins will be the frontman. It is decided. The new album will come out with him on vocals. It'll be their most critically acclaimed and most commercially successful, and they'll become only more successful after that. The next tour will require a drummer behind the kit while Phil Collins sings up front. That drummer is the aforementioned Bill Bruford. Yet all the while, Phil Collins still wants to play drums. 
And it's just around this time that he meets Percy and Robin Lumley and John Goodsell of Brand X, which provides the perfect opportunity. All right, that song's called Big Ugly from the debut Brand X album, Unorthodox Behavior, Percy with John Goodsell and Robin Lumley, the drummer Phil Collins, who I believe called himself Philip Collins at the time. Good to hear Phil getting funky on that. And I'm noticing a common thread with music that was done around this time. There's just something about it. You know, uh, Jeff Beck, Blow by Blow, has tracks that remind me of that. And that came out later, too. So I wonder if there was an influence. There's some Herbie Hancock music that comes to mind. Zappa. And other stuff, too. Mostly instrumental music. I'm not sure what it is. But there's something about the music recorded during this time period, the mid-70s. It's not easily recaptured. I don't think it's possible to recapture it. And I don't know if it is the recording equipment, the recording methods, the mood that's in the air, the common influences. But whatever it is, I like it. Let's get back to Percy. I think the very last U.S. tour we did, I should think it was 1980, Phil did that one. In fact, of all the U.S. tours that we did, Phil did one, which was the very last one. And all the others were done by Kenwood, Chuck Burgey, or Mike Clark. Oh, I see. In the very early days, when we were doing mostly one-nighters around England, Phil did a lot of those. I mean, we'd drive up to Manchester, do a gig up there, and then drive back home to London, you know. So we did a lot of those type of gigs. But then when the tours started to come in, he was unavailable, you know, because Genesis was his his priority. Yeah, of course. And by that point, yeah, Genesis was taken off. Seeing what Phil went on to do was, I would never have seen that coming, you know. Yeah, that was probably a shock. Genesis was already, I guess they already had some sort of more accessible music by that point, right? At the time, I wasn't really familiar with Genesis because I remember Danny Wilding saying to us, I know that this guy in Genesis is a drummer and he's very good. I can get him to come down. And I didn't even know what they <laughs> sounded like, you know, because I wasn't listening to any prog. I mean, I guess you could call them prog. I don't know, but I was listening to a lot of jazz and jazz fusion. You know, I was listening to Miles Davis, Charles Mingus, Tony Williams and some Indian music and, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, where were you coming from musically? Because it does seem different from like a lot of the prog scene. I started out in the 60s. What happened was I grew up in central Wales, in quite a rural area. And then when I left school, actually when I was in school in Wales, I started playing and I I played with a local band, you know, playing at dances and barn dances and stuff. But playing a lot of R&B. And then when I left school, I got a place at the University of Liverpool. So I moved up to Liverpool to study and then uh, I started playing with some other students at the university and one of them was involved in a band called the Liverpool Scene which used to mix up poetry and music and I got invited to play with them that kind of took off yeah you know they were getting lots of work on the sort of pop club circuit in England in the mid to late 60s it was quite a thriving sort of pub club circuit around the UK. Mm-hmm. So you could pretty much keep going the whole time, you know, just on that circuit. So we, the Liverpool scene uh, did that and it gradually morphed into sort of less poetry and more music as it went along. And the horn player in Liverpool scene, because he was into jazz, he introduced me to Charles Mingus' stuff. I mean, I, I'd already been listening to some jazz like Alex Corner in England was sort of mixing up blues and jazz. He would use a jazz rhythm section quite often. Yeah, he had some great players in his band, if I remember right. McLaughlin or Dave Holland or, you know, I've seen his name come up in interviews with guys like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was around, I think, the 50s and the 60s. and A lot of people played with him. And I'm going to jump in. Uh, Apologies for the sirens. Some are on his end. Some are on my end. That is life in the big city. 
And the person he's speaking about, Alexa Scorner, is a figurehead of the London music scene. No longer with us, but during his time in the 50s and 60s, he had a lot of people pass through his band. Much like John Mayle, who we spoke about in the Peter Green episode, who had Peter and Eric Clapton and others pass through his band. And while John Mayle always had these smaller combos Alexis Corner had large bands and employed a lot of jazz artists that would pass through, even though it was more of a blues project. He would have horn players and a lot of members of the London jazz scene. He would also do jam sessions. And uh, apparently one singer started jamming with him named Robert Plant, and they were all set to make a record together until Jimmy Page heard Robert Plant jamming with Alexis Corner and said, I want that guy for my new project. So much like John Mayle would remain this local legend and his band a stepping stone for groups like Cream and Fleetwood Mac. The same is true of Alexis Corner. I think like half the Rolling Stones passed through his band at one point. Led Zeppelin, obviously, he made fun of this fact with an album entitled Musically Rich and Famous. And I just love these old stories, you know, the UK music scene in the 60s. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying this talk with Percy Jones. We've got much more, but we're on the half hour mark. So let's take a quick break and do some housekeeping. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I don't want to make the podcast about me. However, I am super excited to be a part of the next album that's coming out with our guest, Percy Jones, and that is called Pact, P-A-K-T. And our first recording is a double live CD recorded at Shapeshifter Lab in Brooklyn. I think I talked about that show when we did the podcast around that time. And you can order it on moonjune.com. That's Moonjune Records. And our friend Leonardo from Moonjune, who's a passionate music fan and is also presenting our concerts. The concerts are July 22nd at Daryl's house. That's Daryl Hall of Hall and Oates. Yes, <laughs> he has a venue, a very cool venue that's in Pauling, New York. July 23rd in Pennsylvania, Kennett Square, Kennett's Flash Rooftop Series. July 25th, Sellersville, Pennsylvania at the Sellersville Theater. And more shows are planned to be announced, but that's all I can say at this time. Also, by the time you hear this, after June 11th, you'll be able to pre-order the album by going to moonjune.com. And I just want to quickly say about this album, I'm really enjoying listening to it. It's not that I'm one of these artists who hates everything they record. It's just usually in the studio, you fine tune again and again, and it's so meticulous and repetitive. You get tired of the music. This was music, we went into it having no idea what we were gonna do, not really remembering what we did. So, so hearing it, it's very fresh, and uh, it reminds me a little bit of some of the experimental music of Brian Eno, which I like a lot, and some of which Percy has played on, and which we will be discussing in the second half of this episode. Also speaking of new and different experimental improvisational music, our friend Jane Getter, who's going to be on the podcast at some point, she's got a new album, Anomalia. It's getting some really nice reviews. I'm honored to be one of the players on there, along with Adam Holtzman, Chad Wackerman, Stu Ham, Gene Lake, Mark Egan, my friend Randy McStein, our friend Vernon Reed, who's also going to be on the podcast at some point. In fact, I think pretty much everyone on the album would be a great guest down the road. For now, we've got lots of episodes planned, lots of content. That's not a problem. Time is another issue, but we're dealing with that. And finally, uh, thank you, new Patreon members. There were a whole bunch since the last pod, so I, I want to welcome you. Patreon.com 
slash Alex Skolnick. And welcome our new sponsor, Melophy, a very cool online teaching platform. You may have already heard the ad, depending on when it's placed. And Melophy joins Music Masters events as official sponsors for Moods and Modes. We love music education, and we thank you so much for being on board as our sponsor. Now, let's get back to our program with Percy Jones. Alexis Corner was like a very well known on the music scene in England. I mean, I think all the British musicians you talk to from that period would know who he was, you know, or even know him personally. So, having heard Alexis with, you know, the sort of jazzy rhythm sections he used, you know, I started getting into jazz, you know, and then when Mike Evans in Liverpool scene introduced me, he played me some Charles Mingus stuff. I was hooked on Charles Mingus big time, you know, and I started listening to all his records and trying to play what the, the mix that he was playing, you know. Oh, yes. I made amazing compositions. He, he had a, a lot of energy in the music and a lot of spontaneity, you know. There was a looseness about it that was, I mean, I don't mean looseness in a sloppy sense, but looseness in like an improvised sense where you could never really know where the music was going to go, you know, on the edge of your chair all the time. At least that was my take on it. Yeah, it also seems to be different from anything else. Yeah. Right, he had, he had a very distinctive style. You know, you someone to put a record on, you immediately you could tell it was Mingus, you know. And allow me to cut in for a moment. Charles Mingus is a very interesting topic. He sounded quite different from his contemporaries. Very distinct sound. To my knowledge, he never played any electric instruments or incorporated electric instruments. He was always an acoustic bassist playing with horns and piano, traditional jazz ensembles. Yet his music is so distinct as a bass player and especially as a composer. His music seemed to strike a chord, pun not intended, with audiences who didn't listen primarily to jazz. Much in the same way that the electric jazz of Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis and others would reach beyond the traditional jazz audiences crossing over, Mingus did the same thing, maybe not in as great numbers, but with tremendous impact, reaching musicians like Percy, Jeff Beck, who covered Mingus's composition, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. That apparently, from what I've heard from good sources, was the song that earned Mingus the most money he's ever earned from, from music publishing, to the point where he was hounding Jeff Beck, sending him songs regularly. Hey, man, you, I got one for you. you know, do this one, do this one. <laughs> Who could blame him? Now, I assume most of you have heard Jeff Beck playing Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, especially the guitar players. If not, stop this podcast right now. Go get Goodbye Pork Pie Hat by Jeff Beck and listen to it. And either way, if you have not heard the Mingus version of Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, listen to that. Before we get back to Percy, I just want to play you a little bit of a lesser known Mingus tune that really captures the energy that Percy was talking about. By the way, Mingus was quite a character, and some of that is reflected in his titles for songs. If you get a chance, watch this new Netflix documentary with Fran Lebowitz telling stories to her buddy, Martin Scorsese, who directs it, called Pretend There's a City. Highly recommended series. And she knew Mingus quite well. And there's a scene where she tells a great story. She's actually telling it to Spike Lee in the film about Mingus. And the title of this song kind of reflects his character. It's a variation on another composition of his Haitian fight song. But he calls this one 2BS, Roman numeral 2, initials B and S to bullshit. upright bass at the time that you were into Mingus or was it? I started on a fretted electric bass and in 1974 I just got my first publishing advance for 200 quid and I, I looked in the Melody Maker and the, the adverts at the back the Melody Maker was the sort of primo primo um, music paper at the time and there was an ad Yeah, that was like the New Musical Express or yeah, something like that uh, Well, that was the other main publication there were two of them, New Music Express and Melody Maker were the two yep. main ones. So I saw this ad for Fender 
that was precision. It was 200 quid, what guy wanted. So I went up to North London to this guy's house to look at it, and he opened the case, and it looked in really good condition, except for what looked like some Guinness stains on it. You know? <laughs> I bought it. It was just very fortuitous, you know, that I'd just gotten 200 quid, and then I was able to buy this space. So I bought it and took it home, and I immediately liked it. You know, my intonation was rough, and obviously needed to work. I felt very comfortable playing the thing because I, I just felt I could express myself a lot better with that bass than the previous one. The previous one was an old Gretsch semi-acoustic bass with an extra long scale, really huge thing. I switched to fretless at that point and stayed with it ever since. I bought an upright a couple of years later, I think it was 1976, because we used to rehearse in a studio in West London, and I'd noticed this upright leaning in the corner of the room. And every week that we went there, I'd see this upright. So I asked the guy at the studio, what, whose bass is that? And he said, oh, it's ours. You want to buy it? <laughs> so huh. I said, well, how much do you want? He said, 40 quid. You can have it for 40 quid. Oh, it had a crack in it. You know, so it was not... I mean, it was in good condition apart from this crack. So I gave him the 40 quid, bought the bass, and took it home. And I started playing it. And I got up to a certain level, but never really proficient on it and I didn't do much recording with it I think I I did some stuff with Eno as I said earlier Eno being the one and only Brian Eno and I want to play you some of Percy's work with Brian Eno and discuss Brian Eno but first I just want to mention that the bass he is talking about there the electric one is the fretless he is considered one of the main voices of the fretless bass. Now, if you heard our prior episode, we were speaking to Rez Abazi, guitarist, who has a fretless guitar, which is much less common. I've actually never played one. I'm kind of curious. But the fretless bass is more common. There are plenty of players that play them. They're much more easily available than fretless guitars. And in fact, there was a recent roundtable of fretless bass players at Berklee College of Music doing an online webinar. And Percy was part of it. And so many players that I've played with. It was hosted by Steve Bailey, head of the bass department that I played with a few years ago. Michael Manring was there. We worked together in the 90s. Holding the metal side down was Steve DiGiorgio, currently the bassist for Testament, although he doesn't play fretless with us, but he's done other stuff where he does a lot of fretless. Bikiti Kumelo, who I've done some sessions with, he's known for his work with Paul Simon. He's the South African bass player that does that great bass lick on You Can Call Me Al. Mark Egan, who is on the new Jane Getter record that we played on together. Tony Franklin, who I haven't played with, but we know each other. A couple other players I didn't know. But one thing everybody had in common, they were all influenced by Percy. He's truly one of the giants of the fretless electric bass. So that's from an album called Before and After Science by Brian Eno. That's from 1977. That's got Percy. And it sounds to me like he's playing melodic lines on the fretless electric bass. But I think I hear the upright bass that he was talking about before. So I think that lays the foundation with the fretless doing overdubs. And everything else you hear is Brian Eno, except for the drums. And that's our buddy, Mr. Phil Collins, who was on a lot of these sessions with Percy. They were sort of like a team. Now, Brian Eno is, for those who don't know, sort of one of those genius figures in music, very innovative. Reminds me of another Brian named May, although not a guitarist, more of a keyboardist, sometime vocalist. Although he's the first to say that he is not the most skilled on vocals or keyboards or any instrument, yet he has reinvented the game in a way, mostly with recording, the recording process. Innovative is an understatement. Hyper-creative studies creativity. He's also known as a music theorist as well as a musician with new recording techniques and a production resume that includes many folks you have heard of, seminal albums by the likes of U2, Talking Heads, Coldplay, David Bowie. Most of the albums under his name have a more selective audience, 
and I really like them. Um, he's just got an astounding amount of output that falls under the ambient experimental category. And I'm sort of at that point, I like to listen to music to turn off my brain. I don't want to get ideas and have to pick up the guitar and work on a riff or solo along so all the time. So very often I'll just put on music and I've discovered Brian Eno has so much great music to listen to for that purpose, just to tune out and read or just not think about stuff. And along the way, I've noticed some really cool bass parts, many of which turned out to be Percy. Here we talk about that. It's so interesting with the Eno stuff now that you mention it because i've been discovering him you know more recently now that you mentioned that you're playing like i totally i can hear it i know exactly which track you're on like i said we recorded a lot of stuff together and there, there was stuff where i do a track of upright or electric and then overdub a track of upright or electric so it'd be two you know electric and upright and we do a lot of this stuff like on the fly you know he'd come up with a very vague sort of starting point and we'd take it from there and, and we'd move on to something else and move on to something else. So we did a lot of recording and I'm not sure exactly what he used. I mean, obviously a lot of it was never used, but he obviously took bits and pieces from various takes and used them on various records, you know. I remember showing up at the Island Records studio once to work with him and I walked into the control room and the engineer said, duck. So I looked up and there was a tape loop going all the way around the room. What? Like jammed in the corners of the room to support the tape. And this tape loop must have been like 60 feet long or something. Literally going <laughs> going around the room. Wow. And it was another time when he started a click or a metronome or something. And he'd given everybody a piece of paper. And he said, write down one to a hundred. And then he said, number one, Percy, you play C sharp. Number two, Fred. I think it was Fred Frith. Oh, sure. He said, yeah. you play a F sharp. And then he started the click, and I think we got to number 11. <laughs> and then it, it sort of descended into chaos. You know, Phil was throwing uh, water bottles across the room, trying to hit a bicycle that was parked on the other side of the room with a click. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that was something that never, it never took off, you know. But hey, you got to try. Yeah. We'd try these things, you know. That's amazing. <laughs> we were having a really intense conversation about something because he was always open suggestion you know sometimes i would say to him why don't we try this here you know and i mean a lot of people you know when it's their record they don't want to hear any suggestions from anybody else you know he was very open to that so i remember we got into this discussion about this thing we just played and then he said let's have some cake <laughs> so he, he goes onto the desk and he pulls out this fruit cake and he's got paper plates and plastic knives and everything. He cuts everybody a slice of cake. So then we're all standing around eating cake. And then, of course, by then everybody's forgotten, or at least I had totally forgotten what we were talking about. <laughs> so the cake, and then we, we moved on to something else that was totally unrelated to what we'd been talking about. So <laughs> I often wondered if he did that on purpose, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think, didn't he, he have these cards that he used? You know, but I forget what those are called. That's right. He would, in the middle of a conversation, he'd break out the, uh, what do they call it, oblique strategy cards. That's it, oblique strategy, yes. All right, folks, we can't go any further without explaining Brian Eno's oblique strategies and what that term means. You've certainly gotten a glimpse of it with Percy's stories, walking into a recording studio, being told to duck because there is a giant loop of tape surrounding the whole studio, all the musicians being instructed to play only based on numbers written on a piece of paper, Phil Collins being instructed to throw water bottles at a bicycle and it being recorded, everyone in the studio being instructed completely out of the blue in the middle of the process to drop everything, forget what we're working on. We're going to have some cake. And I just happen to have a fresh cake and some paper plates and some utensils right here. What is that? My friends, that is an essential component of Brian Eno's unique creative 
process. And it came about in collaboration with a great multimedia artist who we sadly lost in 1980. But before that, he was a close friend and collaborator of Brian Eno. I'm talking about Peter Schmidt. And Peter Schmidt did numerous art exhibitions in the 70s, a lot of them with Brian Eno, with some of his more atmospheric music. He also did album covers for Brian and Brian and Robert Fripp and many others. And the two of them put their heads together and came up with a series of thought-provoking statements, questions, and directions designed to trigger creativity and get artists out of a rut. Now, in the liner notes of Before and After Science, that's the Eno album that Percy plays on, one of them, he says, quote, In 1975, Peter and I produced a box set of oracle cards called Oblique Strategies, which were used extensively in the making of this record, unquote. The same is true of the three David Bowie albums that Brian was involved with, known as the Berlin Trilogy, Low and Heroes, both of which came out in 1977, and Lodger in 1979. There are numerous interviews with Bowie and other superstars talking about how Eno introduced the oblique strategies into the process. And I don't want to get too far off course here. Our subject is Percy Jones. However, Percy's great stories have opened the door to the topic of oblique strategies. And going off on a tangent, in a way, is right in line with the oblique strategies. So doing some research, I found a BBC story from a number of years ago about the oblique strategies. And I just want to play you a couple clips because I think this will really give you a better idea of what it's all about. In a moment, the story of the cards that were aimed at providing a creative jolt to artists or writers who are either stuck or in need of a new direction. There was a pack of cards and I turned the top one over and it said something on it like, make the background the foreground. And they were full of these little gnomic utterances. And it was only more recently when I've been reading about Bowie and Eno that I came to realize that they must have been oblique strategy cards. Oh, we can be heroes just for one day. I just wish there was a world-renowned musician on hand who'd worked on those Berlin albums to tell me about how the cards came into play. Oh, hang on a minute. Hello, my name is Carlos Alomar. And that's Carlos Alomar, the fine guitarist who played on Bowie's Berlin trilogy produced by Brian Eno. He also played on Bowie's Glass Spider tour with friend of the pod, Peter Frampton. I picked a card and the card simply said, think like a gardener. The immediate impact of the thought of course, throws you off. I think that's the purpose. I started thinking, how would I make things grow? So it allowed me to look at the sessions a little bit differently. I kind of let my guitar parts develop into being what they were. You know, plant something, nurture it, water it, let it grow. They're very curious cards. Let me see. Take the thing that you hate the most and amplify it. Um, Take the most improbable and make it probable. Now, here's the host of that BBC segment, Simon Armitage. I read somewhere that Eno had talked about trying to use these strategies in the studio because he'd noticed in studios that people panic. They're up against a deadline. And when people panic, he said that they take the head-on approach, which usually produces an ordinary but acceptable result. And I suppose in trying to do something through the oblique strategies, you're trying to produce the extraordinary thing. And just one more clip on this topic. Somebody else who appears in this program is a Bowie expert who helped coordinate an exhibition on David Bowie that took place in the UK in 2013. Paul Morley. Eno would have one card that suggested perhaps that he tried different things and Bowie would have a card that suggests he tried the same thing and they didn't know which card they had and they would each enact something, a mix or a texture. For me, in many senses, the producer of the AMS was the Oblique Strategies. I know we went on a bit of a detour. Hopefully you agree it's worth it. The Oblique Strategies really takes the term thinking outside the box to new levels, both figuratively and literally, because you can buy the Oblique Strategy cards in a box. In fact, I just did. (laughs) Brian Eno sells them a high-quality set of these cards on his website. 
enoshop.co.uk. And no, I'm not saying that because he's a sponsor. He's not. I'm just genuinely interested, and I think some of you probably are too. And if anybody's interested in that BBC program, it's great. It's about 30 minutes long. Just do a search for BBC Sounds Oblique Strategies. He goes on to talk to people using the strategies in uh, the fields of cooking, PR, writing. Obviously, some of the music that has had the oblique strategies applied to it speaks for itself. I'm planning to try applying it to some of my own projects. I'll let you know how it goes. I'm sure we'll revisit this topic on a future episode. And for now, let's get back to Percy. Yeah, I remember on occasion you pull these. At first, I thought they were tarot cards. I was thinking, well, what's going on now? You know, but yeah, it was part of his decision-making Whatever, you know. Yeah, it's so artistic. I mean, the the thing with the cake sounds like something right out of that, you know. (laughs) Yeah, it could have been, yeah. Whatever it was, it worked, you know. He was a very interesting guy to work with. I thought he was breaking ground, you know. No no question. When was the last time you worked with him or spoke with him? After I'd moved to New York, I did a, a session with him and John Hassel, which would have been maybe 81 or 82. And then the final session I did with him talked him into using... Mike Clark. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Mike, myself, and Eno, we could come up with some really unique stuff. I'll bet. That would be a disaster. Oh, really? He didn't, couldn't get into what Mike was doing. He said it was too complicated. He couldn't work with it. And I felt a little bad because I was the one who suggested the whole thing. You know, I just had a, a sort of vision in my mind that it could be some fantastic music. You know, but I was wrong. You know, it was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, sometimes you don't know. I I would think on paper that sounds great. Well, like you said, you know, you never know. You have these super groups that are put together despite everybody's individual ability. Collectively, it just doesn't work. You know, I mean, that happens, I guess. Yeah, I've, I've seen that happen a few times. And what I was thinking of there, I didn't say it out loud, but I once saw a clip of John McLaughlin and Herbie Hancock, two giants of their instruments, guitar and piano, respectively, They'd both played with Miles Davis successfully at different times. And they were both on this jazz festival, appearing with their own bands. And then they came together, I guess, for a jam session or a special event. And it did not work. You would not know how great they were. They were stepping on each other. The music just was kind of lifeless. They just didn't have chemistry. Sometimes what seems like a great idea just doesn't work in reality. It happens. So speaking of Herbie Hancock, the drummer who came in to Brand X after Phil Collins was Mike Clark, and he was best known for playing with Herbie Hancock on the best-selling album Headhunters. And whether you're a fan of instrumental music or not, jazz or otherwise, chances are at some point you've probably heard this. And that's Mike Clark with Herbie Hancock in the early 70s on the track Chameleon. And in 1980, he joined Percy and the guys in Brand X on an album called Do They Hurt? Let's hear just a little bit of that. about you but i can totally tell that it's the same drummer from that herbie hancock tune it has a very distinct drum tone and feel and i can absolutely understand why percy would have thought this would be a good combination with brian eno i could picture them sounding great together but alas it wasn't to be by the way that song's called naughty goes to sweden i have no idea who naughty is or what the story is behind that title but i get to ask percy next time i see him So we're almost at the hour point. I think it's time to start winding down. I do have a few more final thoughts. 
As I mentioned up front, Percy Jones, born in Wales, with much history in London and the rest of the UK, but based in New York since the 1980s, is incredibly unassuming. It's all about the art and playing that fretless bass like nobody else. I'm sure at any time over the years, he could have joined a big pop artist and backed somebody up. But that's not what he's all about. Today, he's a member of the East Coast improvisational scene, playing with numerous artists. I'm humbled to be one of his recent collaborators, and I'll be updating you on the music that we do. And we could easily spend a lot more time talking about other associations of his, such as being a part of Soft Machine at one point, a band with numerous members, including the great, great Alan Holdsworth, although they weren't in the band at the same time. But as a member of Soft Machine, he supported Shakti with John McLaughlin. He also played with Steve Hackett, the original guitarist from Genesis, and many others. Of course, his main association will always be Brand X. We started in about 1974, and then we continued until 1980, the whole time up until actually 1980 when they used another bass player, John Giblin, on some of the stuff. And then it stopped working for, well, pretty much a decade. And then in, in the early 90s, John and I, Goodsall and myself, went out as a trio with Frank Katz, and we did some gigs as a trio sort of low-key stuff that was on and off like pretty much right through the 90s we'd go out to california or the midwest have nothing for six months and we got into another little tour you know so it was sort of on and off like that and ended in 2000s we pretty much stopped again until 2016 when you know we got some funding and put a complete band back together and we worked well up until christmas really oh so much history so many decades. And the Christmas he's talking about, where everything stopped again for Brand X, was the Christmas before last. Yes, right before the pandemic, but no, that was not the reason. As mentioned, there was an inner band dispute, largely having to do with the band's management. I'm not going to get into the details, but I will say that it's sad you hate to see it, and you hope maybe they could still work it out. You know, Fleetwood Mac, shortly before then, split with their longtime guitarist, Lindsey Buckingham. And it's hard to picture Fleetwood Mac without Lindsey Buckingham, just like it's hard to picture Brand X without Percy Jones. Then again, Lindsey Buckingham just released a long-awaited solo album, I saw. And Percy's doing all kinds of great music, including Pact, if I may say so. And he's going to be just fine. So, you know, life is unpredictable. And there's no better example of that than Brand X's first drummer. The problem we had with Phil, there was no musical problem, of course, but he was so busy with Genesis. After about 1976, we were getting offers of tours, especially in, in the U.S., and Phil would have a conflict with Genesis. So at one point, Phil said to me, well, if you guys can hang on for a couple of years, you know, I might leave Genesis and play with you guys all the time. Wow. That's not going to happen. You, you know, four guys are not going to wait for two years. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But first, a final reminder that the main focus of the episode is Percy Jones, giant of the fretless electric bass. However, since he did have a front row seat and a direct intersection to several key players and important moments in musical history, we can't exactly ignore it. And I think the story we just heard is an example of the oblique strategy, although unintended. Hear me out for a second. Remember that one of the strategy cards was take what's in the background and put it in the foreground. Phil Collins's voice was in the background. He was a background vocalist. All of a sudden, his voice was in the foreground. And much like the other oblique strategy card that said, think like a gardener, it grew. His voice went from a few seedlings to one of the tallest forests in the world. So what have we learned here? Phil Collins' dreams of remaining a drummer and derailing his own singing career extended beyond trying out numerous singers for Genesis, coaching them, suggesting the band just become an instrumental group, <laughs> even well into the career of Genesis 2.0, he was still so determined to be a drummer that he's telling Brand X, guys, let me just ride this out for a while. Nobody's going to like my singing. 
I'll be back. Wait for me. Well, all I can say is it's a good thing Brand X didn't spend the next two years waiting around for Phil Collins. What a fun episode. I hope you think so, too. Really unpredictable, right? Went a lot of places. It's so great talking to Percy. He has amazing stories. And you kind of have to pull them out of him. You know, he's kind of earnest, humble, modest, but in it for the right reasons. A man of great musical skill who has been in some very interesting situations. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton, with final edits and mixes by Brad Stratton. Music by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Here with Matt Zabrowski and Nathan Peck on the bass on this outro. And any music you heard in the episode that wasn't otherwise specified was by Pact, P-A-K-T, Percy Jones, Alex Skolnick, Kenny Grahowski, Tim Motzert, and used with permission from Moon June Records, and the album comes out July 22nd. And thank you, everyone, for listening. The podcast is nothing without you. Thank you for being patient. It takes a while to do these. I'm trying to find some new systems to speed up the process, but hopefully it's worth the wait. An extra special thanks to our Patreon community. If you'd like to support us directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick, and you can always leave us a review, tell your friends, or post on social media about the podcast. It helps a lot. So thank you once again. Enjoy the post-vaccination era as we open up. And I'll see you on the next episode. Osiris. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. Features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hey, nerds. I'm Sarah, the paper nerd. And if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.